Hey, queeros, you ever hear something and wonder to yourself, hey, was that racist? The show Yo, Is This Racist? tries to answer that question. It's hosted by Andrew T. and Tawny Newsom, who you probably know from all your favorite Earwolf shows. In each episode, Tawny and Andrew cover racism in recent news and pop culture with guests like Nicole Byer, LeVar Burton, John Lovett, and hey, I've been a guest on this show. This week, they're releasing their 1,000th episode. To celebrate, there's an extra long special episode with tons of guests you won't want to miss. Listen and subscribe to Yo! Is This Racist? Now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. First of all, I want to thank everybody that came out to see me. During my fall tour this year, it was incredible. I met so many of you, so many of you waited in line after for a long time (laughs) to tell me that you love the podcast. That means a lot to me. And thank you so much for that. And thank you folks who just uh, tweet it or or write in or whatever. You don't, even if you can't come to a show, but it means a lot to me to hear from you. So thank you very much. I also want to let you know that on the 14th, that's Wednesday, I will be at the Bell House in New York doing a live taping of the podcast Nancy, um, which is WNYC's podcast that is hosted by Kathy Tu, Tobin Lowe, some pals of mine. It's a great queer podcast. So I'm doing a free plug for you right now, Kathy and Tobin. Enjoy it. You deserve it. Today's guest is Lydia Palgreen, who is pal of mine, who also happens to be the editor-in-chief of uh, HuffPo, that awesome giant media maven. That's too many M's. I don't even know if that word maven makes sense in that context. Um, This is a fantastic conversation, and uh, Lydia is a um, superstar. I think that you're going to love this chat. Also, yes, many of the upcoming episodes were taped during two weeks leading up to the midterm elections, so it's a lot of politics because that is how everybody has been feeling. So please enjoy this chat with Lydia. Have a great rest of your day. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still You're giving me a ton of compliments about how well you just said that it was nice to see my show before we started. But and I'm Should turning I? and I'm turning that into it was a ton of compliments. <laughs> well, no, I complimented your jacket. Yeah, oh, that's true. You did say that you like my jacket. I like your jacket, even though it's your backup jacket. Backup it, jacket. It's yes. not your main jacket. Yeah. Um, and also, I did see your show. Um, I've actually seen your show a few times. You've come now. to see me a couple times. And, um, you know, I, I think now I have kind of like a standing order that like whenever I have a chance to see Cameron Esposito, I got to go see Cameron Esposito. That's the best. That's the best. That's the best. Well, um, yeah. You know, on this podcast, I always have folks introduce themselves. Will you say who you are? Will you introduce yourself? I would love to. Uh, my name is Lydia Polgreen, and I'm the editor-in-chief of HuffPost. Yeah. The, the, the one. The one. The one. Formerly known as the Huffington Post, now yeah. known as HuffPost. Um, we are a website 
on the internet, um, the original internet newspaper, which started in 2005. I've been editor-in-chief for, it'll be two years in January. Um, I uh, joined after Ariana Huffington, the eponymous founder, uh, stepped down. And uh, before that, I was a, a journalist at the New York Times, uh, which, you know, you maybe have heard of, a website and also a newspaper. Um, spent much of that time as a foreign correspondent in places like West Africa and uh, India and South Africa, which was a lot of fun and also really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to say after all that is that you have a very big job and you've had a very interesting life. I just want to make sure that people know those two things. It's important to follow that up with those two statements. Um, because you do you do have a big job. Uh, Huff, Huff Post, like, I mean, I don't, I literally don't even know. Readers wise, it's a zillion billion. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it fluctuates, but we reach about 150 million people around the world every month. Um, 60% of that audience is actually outside of the United States. No, that's interesting. We have editions in countries all over the world, in Europe and um, Asia, in North Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, it is, just a really big, fun, cool operation. And we have a strong emphasis on, you know, like the shit that I really care about, like underrepresented folks and covering news for and about them. Um, and, you know, politics obviously is a big story for us, uh, you know, covering stuff like the Me Too movement. Uh, we broke a bunch of stories in India where the Me Too movement has finally taken hold. Um, so, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff we do. And it's pretty awesome. Also, just because like, hey, maybe I maybe I know the answer to this, but maybe I don't. What is an editor of a newspaper, be it online or not what do you do like what is your what is your job what is yeah. my job um it's funny um if someone were to come and shadow me for a day they would probably say wow you go to a lot of meetings that's exactly what i assumed i'm yeah. like meetings that's the job yeah it's a meetings job so you know it's funny I, like i've been a journalist basically my whole adult life um and i you know i got my first job in journalism like a year after i got out of college and um most of that time was spent working alone on stories and so, like, when I was a correspondent for the New York Times, I'd, you know, get on a plane and I'd go to, to Sudan and try and sneak into Darfur and, like, cover the ethnic cleansing that was going on there. And you're, you're, it's really about, like, what you yourself by yourself do, um, you know, and using all of your smarts and your guile and everything that you can to get, like, a really great story. And then you write it and you send it to your editor and it gets published and then you move on to the next thing. And it's a great job and it's really fun to do that. Um, but one of the downsides is that you actually only can point to like what you yourself have done. Um, so I think a lot of journalists who really enjoy kind of being out there in the field or writing um, reach a point where they're like, you know, I'd love to have a broader impact. I'd love to be able to like help others have the kind of experience that I've had as a reporter. Um, and the way that you do that is you become an editor. And um, this is going to sound very sort of like self-sacrificing, but you you kind of like you give up like the thrill of being out there in the world and doing this stuff. And what you get in exchange is like you make it possible for lots of other people, people generally who are like younger than you and, you know, really hungry and excited to be doing this work to do um, to do what you did. Um, so really, my job is to create the conditions in which awesome journalism can happen. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so like you approve. So I'm I'm assuming the people that you meet with are like uh, heads of different departments. Yep. Like the editor of in, in of a they're all they're all reporting to you. Yep. They're saying this is the stories that are being worked yep. on. You're saying like buy sell buy. Yep. That's those are the words you use. Exactly. Um, exactly. And uh, yeah. and you're making sure that like the overall. That it makes sense, like as a as a piece or like as a exactly. as a unit. That everything, when it comes together, works. exactly, and that you know, and and I sort of set the overall vision for what we want HuffPost to be, and you know, what are the things that we really care about, and um, you know, we we recently settled on our mission um, statement and what we think we're really about, and. Um, and, you know, because this is how such things are done, we spent like a day meeting with a group of consultants who like guided us through a conversation where we're trying to decide like what what is what is like really at the core of what HuffPost is. And what we ended up when what we ended up with at the end of the day is actually like kind of brilliant and it really encapsulates what we're trying to do. And the uh, mission statement is people before power. And so we really think of ourselves every day as telling stories about people who aren't necessarily in power, but giving them ways to influence power, to fight back against power, to hold power to account. So um, we really think of ourselves as being kind of in the trenches, helping helping make the world a better place by doing great journalism that challenges power every single day. Well, I would also say that if you're the person setting that tone and that's the mission and um, it, you know, it strikes me as particularly helpful that just like in terms of your personal identity, like you are a queer woman of color and correct and like globally, especially if you're speaking to like the world, you know, we think of I think in the U.S. we're pitched this this bill of sale like, oh, this is like a an under this is a this is small demographic. But like you are actually the world like i just mean like the world is actually not like no a white guy no it is you know not. you know the world is is actually full of like brown people there's and, like a like, lot of brown of people yeah lots of different shades and tones yeah. of melanin yeah. and lots of different uh you know ways of being in the world and no i think that's exactly right and i think um you know i i'm pretty sure that i'm the first uh black woman to run a major news organization in the United States. I was going to ask if you knew. Um, I, I, I think that's probably right. Like, I just was going to guess yeah. and, th- and say that as if it was a statistic because, yeah. like, yeah. yes. No, like, I, that's... I think, I think that's probably right. And, you know, like, that's a that's a big deal. It's a really... It is a it's, big deal. It's a really big deal, and I'm very proud of it. And, you know, I, I come to my job every day with, like, all of my identities very much, like you know, on my sleeve. I'm I'm a woman. I'm a person of color. Um, I'm queer. I um, am of African descent. So my mother is originally from Ethiopia, which is a very particular, you know, kind of heritage to carry with me. Um, I spent most of my life outside of the United States, even though I am an American. I was born in the U.S. and I, and, you know, have spent significant chunks of my of time here. Um, you know, I bring all those identities with me. Um, and so, so, yeah, it's a huge part of how I think about our editorial vision for what HuffPost should be. And that vision is, like, really inclusive. It's, you know, basically if you're not a um, super evil plutocrat who wants to, like, pollute the world and, you know, shrink the space for queer people and people of color, like, come on in. Yeah, you're welcome. Sure. <laughs> you know, something that when we first met, we just, like, had dinner uh, very, very much, like, I think you were just like, do you want to know each other? And I was like, yes. 
think that's literally that's kind, kind of, of what my happened. mo. Yeah. I'm like, I'm no. like interesting person in the world. Will you have a meal with me? I see. That's my same mo. Yeah. So then I'm just yeah. like, yes, I do. I do want to know each other. Yeah. Um, and I think you know something that impresses me again, and maybe you know maybe you could speak to like I'm not sure if having when did your when did your mom come to the u.s okay. or did she ever come she to did the US? yeah yeah yeah. so my parents got uh they met in ethiopia before i was born and they came to the u.s and got married in like 1972 i want to say yeah so that to me like maybe that's part of it but one thing i mean what i'm getting at here is i think in the u.s like we're taught to really be scared mm. of uh Totally. Other countries and specifically some of the places that you're taught. You're like, you're saying Darfur. And I'm like, yeah. that's a scary place that we're not supposed to go to. Absolutely. So, um, and I'm like, quick, sign me up. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you can isolate in yourself, like, like where that comes from, that sort of openness to these experiences. Like, do you know yeah, why you have that? It's a really interesting question. So, um, you know, I grew up in this kind of weird way, right? My my, you know, I come from a cross, you know, a, a biracial and cross cultural background. My mother's Ethiopian. My father's a white American from Minnesota. I spent most of my childhood in countries that were neither the home that were the home country of neither of my parents. Um, and I think I just knew from a really young age that. Um, what it felt like to be an outsider who always had to find a way in. And, um, you know, like when you move to Kenya as like a four-year-old and you don't talk like other people, you don't necessarily speak the language that they do, you just learn at a really, really young age that like you have to figure out how to navigate that. And there are, there are sort of two responses. You can pull inward or you can just like like massively go outward. And for me, it's always been massively outward. So, you know, we I moved around a lot as, as a kid, so I always had to make new friends. Um, the only constant was my my parents and my two brothers, who I'm very close with. But it's super interesting because my, you know, my, my brothers, who are awesome, um, both of them have become complete and total homebodies, right? Like, like, you know, we were raised in the same way, like moving around, very exciting places, you know, I mean, like, people like save up their whole lives to go on safari and like you know I'd, I'd done it like half a dozen times by the time I was 10 years old so in Africa and seen all these crazy animals and lions and whatnot um <laughs> but you know like my brothers are just like we're good you know they're both married living in the U.S. like have no interest in like moving around or anything and I'm the only one of our siblings who's like replicated this pattern of just kind of being super out there in the world and um traveling a lot, moving to lots of different places. And um, and I think like, I think just talking to other people who grew up the way that I did, that that's actually pretty similar. That mm. usually there's like one sibling who kind of carries on the family tradition. Uh, and then the other two are like, no thanks, that was great, but we're going to like be really firmly rooted. That so, makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do you, why do you think it's, do you know why it's you? Are you, is it like a birth order thing or? It could be. So I'm the only girl and I'm the middle child. And um, so, I, you know, so I, I think that that might have something to do with it. But, you know, I had the like bug to like cover the news from like a super young age. I mean, I when I was um when I was 6 years old, there was a an attempted coup in Nairobi. And we were living in Kenya at the time. And my mom and I were sitting um, in our apartment in Nairobi. My 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 brothers and my dad were all out of town. So it was just, just the girls at home. And, you know, you could hear like gunfire. You could hear tanks rolling through the streets. It was like, you know, it was a group of army officers were trying to overthrow the government. And 
my mom, you know, who's from Ethiopia, which has had its share of political violence, of course, was completely terrified. And I was just enthralled. I mean, I was like peeking out the window and all of the domestic um, workers in the apartment complex um, basically left to go loot, um, which is what you do when there's a coup. It's like, you know, it's an opportunity to basically tell the power structure, like, go fuck yourself. Um, And we lived in the middle of like the main shopping district in Nairobi. And so, um, you know, as I'm peeking through the window, I'm seeing all of these um, people who are like our nannies and housekeepers and cooks and things like that coming with like armloads of goods. And um, so I turned to my mom and I was like, mom, Westlands, Westlands was the name of the shopping district. I was like, Westlands is open and everything's free. Can we go? And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she, of course, was like, absolutely not, and closed the curtains and, uh, and you know, double checked to make sure that the doors were locked. But, you know, my... What in- a missed opportunity I know. for you to get all that good free stuff. All that good free stuff. <laughs> and, you know, like, I I remember, like, the last, sort of my last memory of that day was, like, peeking out the window one last time. And there was um, this guy who had stolen a refrigerator. Um, I mean, stolen, like, capitalism. Like, is it really theft? <laughs> Sure. You know, there's a lot of questions. People are asking questions about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Um, and he had this refrigerator balanced on his head that he had appropriated. Um, And um, um, from his forehead, there was like a giant flap of skin that had been torn off. Like, clearly, he'd been in some sort of a scuffle and there was like blood flowing down his face. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is serious. Yes. This is serious, you know. Um, But I, I just like, I always wanted to know what was going on. You know, I wanted to like understand what was unfolding in front of me. And I had this sense of being in the midst of like really momentous events. And like some people in those kinds of situations want to hide. And some people have this like weird genetic mutation that makes them want to run towards whatever it is. You're a very curious person. I mean, I I could say that even just from like having dinner with you. It's like that you're just like you ask a lot of questions, but not like in a, I just mean you're a curious person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other alternative was to become an FBI agent. Sure. (laughs) Just interrogate Because you're like, I ask a lot of questions. Um, Yeah, you're a curious person. And then I also, well, first of all, why were you, the the moving? Yeah. What was the impetus behind the family relocation? Oh, yeah. So so my my dad's uh, work was like kind of international development. Mm -hmm. So he had uh, his special, his his specialization was agricultural engineering and vocational education. So we would move around for his job and he did lots of different things around like helping farmers diversify their crops in the Rift Valley of of East Africa and, you know, stuff like that. Um, So it was really for his job. And, um, you know, like in that life, Life, you're just kind of tagging along, like wherever dad's next assignment is, off you go. And so we moved like 18 times in the first 18 years of my life. That seems genuinely very difficult. And also, it would seem like the specificity of that work, you know, in terms of breaking down fear of the other yep. or, you know, also just in terms of maybe also breaking down pity. Yeah. You know, because that's another thing that we're taught as Americans, um, and especially if you're white, is to be like... You know, there's like the there, there's like no food in China, like yeah. so clean your plate thing, totally. kind of a thing that kids are. No, it's like no. I'm pretty sure there's like there's like some food in China. A yeah. lot of people live there. They have to be eating Absolutely. something. But um, uh, but yeah, I would imagine you know you're meeting people. It's dissolving some of your pity. You're meeting yeah. people. It's dissolving some of your fear. Yeah, and I think that you know when you are put in the position where you're constantly the other. Mm. Um, 
And yet you also have to kind of navigate the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You you just sort of find ways to find common ground. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that for me as a journalist, that's been the sort of touchstone, right? That in any situation, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a refugee camp in Darfur or interviewing like a virulently homophobic, um, you know, archbishop in Nigeria um, or, you know, like in the middle of a battle in Eastern Congo <laughs> during the Civil War, you're, you're just you're just always searching for ways to make that human connection because that's like where the real stories lie. Um, and that's that's kind of been the story of my life, right, is just seeking out these moments of human connection and and frankly, moments of like human solidarity where we're kind of all in it together. And um, and that's hey, I hear you. That's it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's very I easy similar get, mission. It's you know? very, yeah, it's very easy to get super depressed about things, right? And um, I think that one of the things that really struck me, um, particularly in my work as a as a correspondent in um, overseas, was um, like really like deeply getting to understand um, humans on this kind of like basic person to person level. And and I had these like very basic rules about engaging with people. Like if somebody offered me food and drink or food or drink, I would always accept it. Um, and, you know, like you could be in a refugee camp and somebody would be like, I want to make you a cup of tea. And you always say yes, um, because that is a, a fundamental way to create a a relationship of intimacy and humanity and shared, um, you know, kind of shared purpose. Um, yeah. and, and I think that, you know, like, a lot of people would be like, it's a refugee camp. It's dirty. I don't want to get like, you know, or I don't want to take disease. their stuff or I don't want to take their stuff. But, you know, what I know just from my life is that um, accepting hospitality is part of the contract that you have with with other human beings. Right. If someone offers you something um, and you refuse it out of pity or out of fear, like you're 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 othering them in the most profound way. Yeah. It denies dignity. Yeah, you know, I think that's I think that's one reason that like for instance homelessness in this country is is so um particularly brutal I think because we often give folks who um are unhoused and who live on the street, you know, no opportunity to like tap back into mm. the rest of culture. Yep. And that doesn't mean like I you know, I live in LA, there's yep. camps and communities that mm. are on the street there um and you know, so there's community there, like within mm. that group of people, but, you know, not allowing somebody the opportunity to like either make their own money or have some sort of job or then, you know, yeah. host or like yeah. know, provide. No, it's totally. A, it's, it's huge in denying that person dignity. It's a, big, yeah. it's a big deal. Well, and I think like if you get out into the world, like, and you're open to it, you can see human dignity in all of its fullness mm-hmm. in, in so many rich ways, but you have to be open to it. Um, and you know, like, I, I just, I feel immensely privileged to have been able to, to do that work and to be out there in the world doing, being, being there. Hey, what are you trying to buy stuff? Well, you don't need it to be brand new, do you? Because you could head to Poshmark to shop for millions of closets across America. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You want to save the earth? Well, become a vegetarian. But also, shop at Poshmark. Poshmark is the easiest way to buy and sell fashion items. You can download the free Poshmark app to sell from tons of brands across women's, kids, men's, all humans. You won't believe the deals you find, like 
Louis Vuitton bags for $300. I could buy that, and then I could give it to someone who carries a Louis Vuitton bag. Shipping is super fast and easy for both the seller and the buyer, and it's handled all through the Poshmark app. When you see something you want, simply make the seller an offer. You can get the price that works for you. Need to clean out your closet? Listing on Poshmark is easy. Friends, here's what I truly love about this. Don't throw your clothes in the trash. Give them to someone else using Poshmark. You need uh, something super fancy, but you got a limited amount of funds this month? Poshmark. Wow, Poshmark, you should come to me because I'm going to write your new slogans. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the code QUERY5 when you sign up. Just download the Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code QUERY5 for $5 off your first purchase. This week's episode of Query is sponsored by Wild Fang. Huh, Wild Fang is a rad, gender-smashing, feminist fashion brand that's here to take down the patriarchy. Wild Fang was founded by some badass entrepreneurs who want to make the world a better place. They put their money where their mouth is, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight for your rights. A percentage of every purchase goes to charity, and this year alone they raised $100,000 to save the last abortion clinic in South Dakota. That is true. So it is a fashion brand, yes, but it's also authentic as fuck. They speak out for women, immigrants, they speak out for racial justice, and they stand with us, the LGBTQ community. You can visit wildfang.com for suiting, button-ups, and friends, if you live in mm, Portland or Los Angeles or New York, you can go into the Wild Fang store. I recently did when I was in Portland, met one of the company's founders, and oh boy, did I get some cool button-ups. But if you don't live in those cities, all you got to do is go to wildfang.com and use the code QUERY for 25% off. That's W-I-L-D-F-A-N-G dot com. Code QUERY for 25% off. I know you're looking for places to buy suits. Wild Fang is a great spot. I mean, you say all that and like, I know this is true and I know this is your story. And I also, I just think there's, I mean, I think about you being a queer person in a lot of those situations mm. and like sort of, I mean, I feel unsafe sometimes walking down my own street. <laughs> um, and so I just imagine, I mean, I have no idea. Do you think that that has, or what are some moments where that has been a part of things for you in terms of just like you're positioning yourself in the world, you're talking about a super homophobic clergy member. Like how how are you dealing with that? You the human being. Yeah, it's funny. Um, so, um you know, so my wife, Candy, and I, we've been together for a very long time, and she and I lived and traveled and worked together the entire time that that we were overseas. And um, it was always a really kind of, like, fascinating situation. I mean, I'm of an age. I'm 42. I've, I've always been out professionally. I've always been very public about being queer. Um, and when I initially went overseas, I had to sort of Recap, you know, sort of rejigger that and just think, okay, what is a way that I can be myself and be true to myself, but also not like attract um, unwelcome attention that might lead to danger? Sure. And, um, you know, while I was in West Africa, um, there was this whole flood of um, 
of um, of really horribly homophobic laws that were put on the books or people tried to pass in um, in including in Senegal, the country where, where where my wife and I lived, and and there was this sort of weird disconnect because the culture as a whole, um, you know, there was a significant amount of homophobia, but it was the homophobia of of like of of the unknowing um it sort of it, it's sort of what i imagine it must have been like in the united states in like the 1940s you know um where nobody thinks that they know a queer person everybody just assumes that everyone's straight and therefore queer people are like super easy to other and as an outsider you know because we're americans we look different we talk different we're just weird there's so many other things that are weird about us that like queerness is like the least of it, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really like, funny. It's like you're so weird that like maybe like the fact that you wear mannish shoes is just like a thing that American women do. So you were saying like you, know? you weren't you don't think you were getting clocked as much. I don't think so because I think like we were just so far off the radar. That's really interesting. You know? Um and, you know, we were also like, let's be honest, in a position of, an enor- of enormous privilege. We were Americans. Um, you know, we earned, you know, much, much more money than, you know, the average queer person um, in in that in that country would. Um, and therefore, we could insulate ourselves. Um, you know, like we had a housekeeper who, of course, knew that we were a couple and that we, you know, had one bedroom with one bed in it. And that was like the way that things were, but, you know, but I think like, you know, wealth insulates you from a lot of situations. Um, And, um, and so that was definitely our kind of like day-to-day lived experiences. But at the same time, there were moments where, where like you would confront this in like a very real way. And, and one is when I met that, that, that um, archbishop, I think he was, was he a bishop or archbishop? Anyway, who cares? Um, there was at the time. This was like a big news story at the time. Um, there was this um, schism within the um, Anglican Church over homosexuality in mm-hmm. the clergy, right? And it was a sort of north-south split, where you know, in in the United States and in England and elsewhere, you know, in the West, people were saying, "Oh, of course we should have um, gay priests. It's no big deal." But there were uh, uh, bishops in the what they call the Global South who were like, really, really opposed to this. And one of the leaders of that movement was this guy Peter Akinola, who was um, this this very powerful Anglican bishop in Nigeria. And uh, I happened to be in Nigeria when the story was breaking, and I managed to get an interview with him. And I went to his office to you know do this interview, and he was incredibly warm and charming and you know welcoming. And then he told this story about this was even before the interview had started, like formally started. We were just chatting. He told this story about um, he said, you know, once I was on a receiving receiving line and uh, in, in being introduced to diplomats. And this diplomat was like, you know, I'm so and so. And like, this is my partner. And the the other the partner, the, the, the person was a man and the other partner was a man. And he said, oh, I jumped back. I couldn't believe I'd shaken the hand of a homosexual. And. And your, like, hand is in his hand as he's saying this? Basically, yeah. And, you know, in that in that situation, I'm there as a journalist to get a story. I'm not there to – this is not, like, me having a teachable moment with Peter Akinola about meeting homosexuals. Um, so, so I didn't say anything. I just conducted my interview, got my story, and, you know, and, and went on my way. But um, – 
But it, it was like a really bizarre, bizarre moment. And then, you know, there were other sort of practical implications. Like uh, when we moved to India, um, all of my um, straight colleagues, their spouses could come and live in India on a spouse visa. Um, and in um in India, they didn't recognize our relationship. Therefore, we always had to kind of like beg, borrow, and steal to figure out what kind of um, residency permit could she get so that we could live in India together. And we were there for three years. So what it was, was it sometimes? Trivial. Like what kind of vague? What would do you remember? I mean, any for of the, a like, while, yeah. I mean, she's a photographer, so for a while, she managed to get accreditation through you know different photo agencies. Um, but for a while, she actually had to like go live in Thailand. Mm. Um, for, wow. Uh, because while well, we figured out like the next solution. Um, so you look, and these are minor inconveniences compared to people who you know are shunned by their families, who lose their lives, all these kinds of things. But y- you do kind of get a glimpse at, 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 at what life is like for queer people um, in, in many different countries. And, you know, at the same time, when we moved to South Africa, South Africa actually had more um, progressive um, laws about uh, gay marriage in the United States, our, yep. our home country, right? So it's, uh, it's there, there are different sides to that coin. So, you know, when we moved to, to, to South Africa, it was the first time that um, in any country our, our relationship was, was recognized under law. So it was but pretty remarkable. But then I also happen to know because I'm in South Africa and also because I know some specificity about your uh, relationship that, that – um, you're an interracial couple and that you would actually be like perceived very differently yep. than each other in yep. that in that um, no, it, absolutely in it that is. country. So I just mean you're like, ah, we can relax. Yes. On one of them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know. Um, no, totally. And 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 you know, like in, in South Africa, there is a particular and pernicious problem of violence against queer women. Um, I, I'm aware of that as well. And that was actually something else I was keep going, keep going. What no, no, no. Saying? I was just gonna say that like again, you know, we live in a we lived in a state of extraordinary privilege vis-a-vis the kind of ordinary South African, but um but, you know, you were very much aware that this was something that was unfolding and, um, you know, it was a story that we were covering. And, and you know, uh, it, it's just this kind of atmosphere of danger that, that, that you're constantly aware of. And, and just crime generally in South Africa is a major, major problem. Right. I mean, without um... – First of all, I don't want to say this like this is a thing that happens in South Africa and never here or never anywhere else. But and I also want to there's going to be I'm going to give a little warning right now because I'm about to talk about sexual violence. Yeah. But what you're talking about, some of what you're talking about is um, like. I mean, I honestly think the term for it is like corrective rape. Yes. Um, which is a, a queer woman being raped by somebody that thinks that that is going to fix her. F- yeah, makes yeah. Th- make this person a straight person. And um, I'm not saying that to bring out the idea of, like, South Africa is a particularly scary place, sure. but to just talk about that, like, you know, this is real. Like, these mm. are, this is real for our community. Yep. Um, and then globally, this is a real thing. But then also, like, certainly there are stories like that right here, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. No. And, it, and it's – so I wanted to ask because I – you know, there's there's so many other things to talk about here, too, because I would imagine – I was imagining for that Nigerian um, bishop or archbishop that also in that kind of place so often what then is talked about is like the, the you know, archetypal gay male relationship. Like it's almost like you wouldn't also even come into that person's purview because like they wouldn't even be like. And also yep. other people are, 
you know, gay. Like this is a an issue that is thought to be like we are we are thought to be gay men only, and yes. we are thought to be gay <laughs> men um, who are also like uh, transmitting HIV and AIDS constantly yep. like that's what our community does yep. and that and a lot of that is also holdover from colonialism and yep. from you know the catholic church going down to uh going down i don't know depends on it but the catholic church going to places in south and central america totally. in africa um and bringing this idea that that uh yeah like aids is a, a disease that AIDS is is a disease yeah you're gonna catch it yep it's hard to know how it's gonna kill you and it's passed between gay men. Yeah. And, and, and you know, look, colonialism and colonize the experience of being colonized, I think, has a profound impact on on all aspects of human behavior and therefore human sexuality. Right. And I think that um, the spaces that are created for queer people in um, in culture. Um, and look, every culture has some form of space for queerness, right? Um, going back to the ancient, ancient, ancients, right? Um, those spaces, even if they were very, very limited, um, were were often erased by colonialism, right? Um, and by colonial laws. So, for example, in India, where there is a rich tradition of you know um, of gender queerness um, of all kinds. Um, there was also a colonial era law on the books that essentially banned gay sex that was just only very, very recently repealed. Um, so what you have is a set of cultures that created a space and accommodated different kinds of queerness um, the, and and then imposed on top of that this kind of colonial burden that then erases and closes that space and criminalizes it. And so I think that when you're when you're talking about um, these these when you're talking about culture and the spaces that cultures have for different ways of being and different ways of accommodating um, uh, different ways of being, uh, you, you really do have to think about like the influence of colonialism in all of that because it, it and it and it comes up in the way that people think about HIV and AIDS and you know HIV AIDS is in the United in in the United States we think of it as a gay you know it was thought of as a gay disease or drug addicts or whatever. In, in much of sub-Saharan Africa, HIV and AIDS is very much a um, an everybody disease. And, um, yes. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and part of the, the extraordinary crisis um, of, of HIV and AIDS in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa is the fact that, you know, it wasn't just 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 air quotes, gay people getting it. It was, you know, heterosexual. And so I think I think that like. And also the church was was providing medical care and was like straight up don't use condoms. Yeah. You're going to be fine. No, like I just it, mean that it's like. Exactly. It's impossible to. Exactly. Yeah. So I think like, you know, again, you know, when I'm in these places, I often think to myself, like, how how has how have ideas about gender, about sexuality, about um, like the way that humans interact with each other have been corrupted and perverted by colonialism. And um, and that is, you know, that's often the sort of the question that I come down to. And and so, you know, it's 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 one thing to um, to think of societies as being, you know, more homophobic or less homophobic, but they also carry this burden of um, having had, you know, white Western male patriarchy shoved down their throats. Absolutely. I mean... Well, right. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. India 
um, is a place that had like when when you're talking about gender queerness, also like third gender understanding, yeah. very similar to like um, indigenous populations here in the U.S. or like in Canada. There's a lot of third, yep. third gender um, understanding and recognition. And then, you know, I think about um, you know here in the U.S. we we're taught through our history books and especially for white person, like we are actually a colony. Like we were the one, like we were like, we are the oppressed or whatever. Mm. And I think so often we forget that we are actually the colonizer, you know, Mm -hmm. like that, and that, and that, um, yeah, all of this that you're talking about is. No, it's it's like a, it's passed down from like a bad reading of the Bible. Like, you know what I mean? No, it's (laughs) like, it's, it's, that's the thing. Right. And, and that's, I think a really good point is that we are, we, we are colonizers. I mm-hmm. mean, look, I, you know, I often say that um, that the only true American religion is amnesia. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's good. <laughs> and and, you know, we're we're addicted to it. Right. I mean, we all it's 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 a mix of either just straight up amnesia or revisionist history. Um, and we practice it in, you know, going back to the founding of the nation, um, which, of course, was an act of of, of colonization and yeah. of of genocide and so I, you know yeah uh us too hashtag us too yeah and i think i think it's i think it's so smart what you just said and in, in thinking about um yeah like the burden that we all carry and then i would say especially you know since we're all t- we're talking about this like american othering of like oh my god there's it's so violent there and and towards some like towards gay folks or queer folks or lgbt folks and um yeah just to have some understanding of where that's from who brought that over why that is entrenched in the power structure you know because yep. like it might not even exist within every person but like why is that the power structure okay well who what's the chain of command like yeah. or not the chain of command what's the like chain of that power structure like who had power before and how they pass it down and and like what is the root of that i also think that like you know it, inherent in that kind of fear is a belief that your life is worth more than someone else's Mm. um and that you know i as a special person from america don't want to go to this scary place and that i'm not you know that 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 they're that i'm facing so much danger there well there are all these people who are living there yeah this is where they actually live all the time (laughs) (laughs) and 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 that's and that's the crazy part right i mean uh my 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 wife and i went on vacation with my brother and his wife to um to Kenya um, at one point, and it was another chaotic period in Kenyan history. I seem to have a habit of showing up for those. And there had been this very, you know, violent election and, you know, all of these, like, you know, massacres and whatnot. And um, and there were all these protests that were going on, and we'd made this plan. We were all very excited. We were going to the beach. And um, and I remember talking to my sister-in-law, and she was like, are you sure we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't um, cancel this trip? Because she was watching CNN, and there were, like, literally people with, like, machetes, you know, marching in the streets. And I was like, look, I'm going to explain how this works to you. Like, a producer from CNN had to drive around for hours to find that small group of people with their machetes, like, waving them. They're, like, not going to be anywhere near the five-star hotel where we'll be staying in Nairobi overnight before we, like, take our little plane to go to the coast. And then on the coast, like, there literally won't be any of that going on. Like, we'll totally be fine, you know? And, and like, that's the other side of it, which is, you know, A, why is, like, my life worth any more than anybody else's? But B... Like the picture that you see from outside is is so distorted and so different from what life is actually like once you get there. Um, you know, I um, 
because I spent a lot of time covering conflict zones in in um, the developing world, I know that like the primary uh, experience of a foreign correspondent is one of like deep and profound boredom while you wait for something to happen. Um, and I think people are often surprised by that because they think like, oh, you know, you're like putting on your flak jacket and like dodging bullets and, you know, and it, when in fact, like most of it is just kind of standing around and waiting for things to happen. And wow. It's like incredibly banal, but like. Are you telling me that um, the, the news about other countries is produced the same way that the news about our, this country is produced. <laughs> In, indeed, that I is. Just, I just mean like you're a sharp the, one, Cammy. <laughs> but I, but I think it's you know what you're talking about is we are though um, culturally sort of trapped in a moment of having a very difficult time um, discerning what is real. And I, I'm not. This is not like a. Fa- this is not like a fake news moment. <laughs> this is a. Um, you know, technology is so cheap right now. You can you can make a lot of things look like a lot of things are happening. And then we all have feelings, the yep. feeling about what's happening. So, um, I mean, here's the positive side of this. We have we have um, video of evidence that shows that, like, uh, a black person is being stopped for no reason by the cops. And then the, the escalation is clearly on the police officer's side. Like, we, we, you, know, you know, we have that moment or whatever. But we also have the opportunity to, um, you know, shoot something a strange way and and then who knows what's actually happening. Yep. And we also have, uh, you know, white folks feeling, I guess, left behind. But then we also have a media that, like, really seems to want to tell that story a lot mm. about the, you know, um, Appalachia. The, the white person that's so sad right now. Yeah. So, like, I would, I mean, in your job, how are you managing any of this? It seems like a crushing yeah. moment. It is. I mean, I think, like, I think all of us in the news business right now are thinking, I, I mean, I hope all of us are thinking really hard about our role and our place in what feels like this post-fact world where, um, you know, truth and accuracy don't seem to matter. Um and I, I worry, though, because, you know, I think that that particularly in the American tradition of journalism, there is a tremendous devotion to the idea of 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 somehow not taking sides or not being seen to take sides. Sure. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And that, you know, um, that in what felt like saner times or times where you know, way out voices didn't have a way to get amplified. It was very easy to present our reality as existing between a, a pair of like very narrow guardrails. And therefore, you know, the media could kind of be like on the center line of a two lane highway, you know. But if you're actually on like an eight lane superhighway where you have, you know, crazy shit going on in like the far lanes on either side, um, you know, like is the middle between all of those actually like the truth and the place to be? Um, so you, you've got this weird phenomenon where suddenly like our aperture has widened hugely. So voices and things that like just weren't within the picture are suddenly visible and you have to somehow integrate them um, and integrate them can't be um, done in the same way as it was when you were just like had this very narrow aperture that essentially only took into account like powerful white, mostly male people. Um, 
And, right. And now, like, for everyone, that aperture has been opened, right? Mm-hmm. And so suddenly, everyone's like, holy shit, there are all these other people who are making demands. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah, right. And, like, you know, claim that their lives matter or claim that they should be able to use, like, whatever bathroom they want. Or, or a claim, bathroom. Or a bathroom. <laughs> or just go exactly. to the left, like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 a and I think like there's just a ton of confusion in all of that. And I think that in my business, like we've really, I think, struggled to respond to that. And this became like really, really, really clear to me on the day that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. Um, like most journalists, I get like a bajillion news alerts on my phone. Right. Because like I have like the app for every single news organization. I remember what you posted on this day. And I've like I have spent yeah. almost no time on social media lately. Yeah. Because I've been trying to really get off. But keep, that's good. Go, go. Yeah, that's good. Good but, for you. But I remember this. I, 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 I do it for you. Because I was thinking about you, you <laughs> yeah. know, in the... But yeah, keep, yeah. Go, go... So, go you know, you had news alerts from all these different news organizations um, about his confirmation. And, you know, the New York Times, a news organization I love and I worked for and they do great work. Um, you know, they toppled Harvey Weinstein with their reporting. I mean, goddamn, who thought that could happen? Um, but like the Washington Post and others, their, their news alert basically said, Brett Kavanaugh confirmed after a bruising partisan battle. You know, and that's how they framed it. Um, now, our news, our news alert and the news alert from BuzzFeed and a couple of others said something like Brett Kavanaugh confirmed after being accused of um, sexual assault, you know, <laughs> and and those are very distinct choices. Right. I mean, I believe that our news alert was factual. I think that the news alert that other news organizations used essentially co-opted what was the Republican Party talking point about these hearings, right? That it was all just a partisan game and and therefore weren't fair and weren't accurate. And so but I, I, I can put myself in the shoes of an editor that's sending this 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 thing and he's saying or she's saying, although let's be honest, it's probably a he. Sure he's um, saying <laughs> um, and he's saying like, okay you know, this guy's now on the Supreme Court. Like, this has basically been voted on and decided. Um, you know, it was a, a partisan, a party line vote. Therefore, like, it's a partisan battle. Throw up your hands. And, mm. you know, but, like, was it really? Well, I, I think. And, like, is the most newsworthy thing that. That. That's, that you know? I'm so glad you said that is right. such a good point. That's such a good point. I'm smacking the table, creating bad audio. I, it's, it's, I think it's good audio. I think it's good. We all <laughs> this need to is be ex- fervent. Yes. We I, all need to be expressing ourselves more, more fully with our bodies, I think, and, and slapping the, the table is a good way to do that. But like this is the kind of thing that I'm thinking about a lot. And I and I worry that um I worry that a lot of my colleagues want to pretend that the aperture hasn't widened, you know, and um and and pretend that, you know, two years from now, you know, six years from now, we're gonna go back to a world in which we're on that two-lane highway and they can occupy that spot comfortably in the middle as like the yellow line down the middle. And I don't think that's the case. I think we're going to have to deal with the superhighway um, for the rest of our existence. Sure. I mean, I also think about, and I mean, this is like, I am a, this is, this is, part of this is baked into like my understanding as somebody who's like on the left. But I think this is also irrefutably true. Um, You know, one thing that happened in order for, you know, the, the, to our our two most powerful political parties uh, to cement themselves is, um, you know, the Democrat, the Democratic Party, like encompassing and including 
conversation on civil rights as like sort of the like this is this is where we'll reach that isn't like whatever how the government is set up, even mm. though obviously those things are intertwined. And then the Republican Party um, reaching out to and incorporating the religious right just creates like this weird moment in the news where um, in order for Republican talking points to make sense to the folks that they want to vote. And so they have to encompass in their when they speak the uh, like an elected official who's on that who's on the right has to um, they have to say something that makes sense or is irrelevant to the most successful businessman yep. in America and that also makes sense to somebody who is motivated only by their faith. Mm-hmm. And, the, and that talking point, that seems – I think for me that is part of the reason that it is so difficult to figure out what's – like how some people can – or I try to think of that when I'm trying to figure out how somebody can be so confused mm. because it's like you're speaking as if the you're speaking about the news from a religiously motivated standpoint or you're speaking about the country. You're speaking about reality from a religiously motivated standpoint. Like here's an example that I would talk about uh, like last week or whatever. Donald Trump is, you know, he the administration is moving back toward. Um, abstinence only sex ed like that is something that's gonna work out great yeah number one like we absolutely know that the effect of that and it's not like it's actually it's i don't even know if it's like the result like it's not even an effect the result is that like uh, abortion rates go up and people are put in trauma and you know like it's 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 a terrible way of doing health Mm -hmm. um and it turns like the it seems like the government should be more in the business of health than in the business of Sex. Like, I just yes. mean sex is health. Like, so let's just call it that. It's amazing what small government people <laughs> want the government to do. It's, it's tr- wild. Really <laughs> it's wild. It's true. They really want, yeah. <laughs> they seem yeah. to have a really long agenda. Right, right, yeah. right. And so, but I, I think about like, well, that's a headline that, um, you know, like if you're, if you're, if you run like a, like, like megacompany.com or whatever, you can just be like, I don't care about that either way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm just not sure, like, how we're supposed to survive. I actually think it seems like three lanes. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying, Mm. if that makes sense? And I'm not saying that there isn't, like, a more fringe element, you know, everywhere. Like, that there isn't, like, you know, like. But I just mean it seems like what we're talking about is, like, uh, folks who are on the left, folks who are on the right that are motivated by money and business interests, folks. On the right who are motivated motivated by by faith. And so it's like there's there's. And that's, I think, sometimes why things can seem skewed to me is because it's actually it's you're trying to satisfy two thirds. Well, and and I think and and like from a population perspective, that's actually like more like maximum one third. Um, Right, right, right. right. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. But um, one third of the people, but two thirds of the space. Yeah. Two thirds of the political space. And I I, no, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I I also think that. the thing that's really interesting about the constituencies within um, the right is that they are actually um, like kind of monomani- – they tend to be monomaniacally focused on one thing. So if you are part of the like plutocrat wing of the Republican Party, all you really care about is tax cuts. Maybe if you're like super ideological, you care about um, – I mean, so if, if you're – okay, if you're a, a, like a plutocrat, you're like tax cuts, um, reduce regulation um, – you know, fighting minimum wage, making unions weaker. Like, th- that's a whole suite of things right. that maybe, like, evangelicals don't really care about that much, right? Because they're, you know, all about right. saving, saving babies and... Um, and um, 
Saving adults, just saving, just, just generally just saving, saving, but not necessarily money. The other guys are money. The other guys money. care about money, yeah. right? But, you know, if they are willing to be, if, if, if a person is willing to be monomaniacally focused on one issue um, or one, like, suite of connected issues and kind of not care about anything else, right? So if you're, like, plutocrat business guy, you... You may personally be pro-choice, right? You may personally favor gay marriage. Right. Um, but you're not going to get that worked up about abortion restrictions in Texas because you probably don't live in Texas. And if someone you cared about needed an abortion and they lived in Texas, like you could probably pay to fly them to a place where they could get an abortion. Right. So if you're in a position of wealth and privilege, then, you know, these issues that are so important to evangelicals um, – actually aren't really going to affect you that much. Right. Um, you can relocate geographically. You can, you know, there are a number of ways in which wealth can insulate you from, um, you know, hand, hand, Handmaid's Tale dystopia style right. laws, right? Um, so so I think, I think that that's the kind of weird unholy alliance that's developed between these two groups. It's extremely confusing. Yeah. And yeah. I think it makes it even more confusing, you know, like some, during an abate or a speech or something like that where – all of these talking points have to be covered at once as if they make sense together. Yeah. You know, where and again, it's not like I it's not like I think that the left is perfect, but it's a it's a Yeah, I'm I'm here to tell you it's not. Yeah. yeah Just have one. Right. No, of course. <laughs> they seem to be real good at losing elections. They're really good at losing elections. Yeah. One thing that seems true is that the issues align with a lot of the policy. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem like we actually would have that <laughs> going for us. Where like, for instance, like like uh, outlawing abortion has like very little to do with, um, say, whatever it is, just like destroying a union. Like those yeah. things, you just can't necessarily. And by the way, yeah. not really. Like, of right. course, all issues are connected. But I just mean if you're sure. cover, if you're trying to cover yep. that in Completely. a single speech, yep. it would seem like you're really yep. having to yep. do a lot of work. Right. Where like on the left, it's actually like you could do all of this at once, and so it seems like. Yep. We should be able to, yeah, or that that or that that party should be able to. I, I think that's I think that's right, but I think that also you know the thing to remember is that ide ideology is like fundamentally an elite pursuit, right? I mean, most people sure. don't really sit around thinking like, oh, I I believe in free markets or I believe in you know. So people tend to have like emotional core beliefs about certain things, like based on their life experience or how they were raised or whatever. I think the thing that's um, really pernicious, and this is like what's happening in the news, like literally right now, um, is that, you know, okay, so in 1994, right, when we were just, I mean, I was in college, you were probably in high school um, or middle school, I don't know. I was, I was in middle school. Oh, man. I feel old. No, we're, yeah. we're <laughs> peers, but boy, was I very much in middle school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little cammy <laughs> she's cute yeah. i'll say i've seen some pictures yeah yeah yeah. yeah. i know there's um, don't worry there's always more <laughs> uh in 1994 uh it was the midterms right after bill clinton was elected president yes. and uh you know there was the good the, the contract with america you know newt gingrich and his crew um took back control of the house which had been out of republican hands for like you know 40 years or something and that was the year that the um that essentially the wedge issue was invented right and a wedge issue um 
is basically a highly emotional kind of national issue that can be used and manipulated to get people to vote, uh, to sort of consolidate your base, right? So abortion, obviously, like the classic wedge issue, um, super motivated group of people who will basically forget every other interest they might have in order to to to, um, to secure the that that thing that they care about. But the other big ones were, you know, gays in the military. Like, remember when we used to fight about gays in the military? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I, I can't believe that we've completely solved all of our issues. Of, it's amazing uh, that homos can totally like serve in the military and it's totally fine. Oh, my God. It's true. And yeah. and I would just say all LGBT folks really yeah. protected um, in their absolutely. decision to uh, absolutely serve um, this country. <laughs> yeah. Turns out. Turns out that can work. Um, so gays in the military was another one. Um, and so like this is like a very and like. I think Democrats have tried to do this, but like they just aren't good at it because, you know, I think they're not as organized um, or as like monomaniacally committed to like one specific thing. Um, But fast forward to today in the midterms and what I've seen happening is the Republicans and the Trump administration desperate to find a wedge issue that's going to work for them. And Mm. you need some red meat, something that's going to, like, turn your voters out, even if they're feeling demoralized. Right. So that's the, like, caravan. Well, so so they've tried a few things. Right. I mean, I think they had high hopes for the Kavanaugh Kavanaugh. thing. Right. That, like, Me Too's gone too far. You know, uh, protect your son. That's horrifying, by the way. It's horrifying because if you saw that human being tell her story, if you, like, saw Dr. Ford... Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. No. I just it's like a that's a, a person in their in their rawness up right. there. Right. You know? No, I think I think like a significant number of women, including potentially a significant number of Republican women, might have felt that way. So that was like the first attempt at the wedge issue. Then um I, I don't know if you saw the New York Times story. I'm sure you did, because everybody in our community did, um, about um, you know, this like biological definition of gender at yep. birth and genetic testing. I saw that story and I was like, this is a wedge. They're trying to basically rile up the libs to get them to seem like really freaky um, and take a big stand on this issue so that um, their core voters will be like, oh, no, we've got to go to the polls. Otherwise, you know, we're going to end up with Otherwise, my complete and total misunderstanding of what anybody's talking about will... (laughs) Exactly. Uh, That didn't really go anywhere. And they, you know, but they seem to have gotten some real traction with the caravan, right? So the caravan has become a wedge issue. And a wedge issue in order to work has to be something highly emotional, right? It can't be like, oh, you know, like taxes can't be a wedge issue, right? right? Because like, you know, taxes are like dollars and cents. People don't get emotional about that. Um, But what's crazy um, and heartbreaking is that the caravan, like this whipping up the base over the caravan, I think it, it, it seems very clear that it's led to unbelievably tragic consequences. Yes. You know? And so I, I just think that I just think that we've gotten to this point where, and I just keep thinking about like Newt Gingrich and the contract with America, which was like so uplifting, but at the same time, there was this like very dark arts politics thing going on. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I think is happening with the caravan. And then sure. this time, it's like the wedge has turned into like literally turned into a bomb. And yes, it's it's, it's terrifying. Well, when you tell people that that they're that, that they're going to, they're going to be physically attacked yeah. in their homes, I mean that is that is literally. What the president is saying. Yeah. And by the way, that's also what the president is saying, like, about 
trans folks. Like, this yep. is like, this person is coming into your bathroom. Yep. You know, like, probably at your home. Right. You're going to go in your home. <laughs> you're going to go in the bathroom. There's going to be a trans person in there. You know, I just... And, and I, oh, my God, what will they be doing in I there? I mean, we. All, I also think it's easy to forget, Maybe like... fixing their hair. Yeah. Or, yeah. We, it's easy to forget that don't ask, don't tell. Like, I mean, you're... Th- that was... That 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 was the left being yeah. like, I'm going to protect gay people by saying like that they you can be you, silent. You can't. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that You can be silent, which actually yeah. means you can't come out yeah. like that. We You know, they, we just didn't. Uh, whatever, but I just mean, you know, it's I, I think a lot of us are looking back to the 90s with some like fresh eyes on things, you know, and I think nobody felt that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was like an awesome thing. Uh, I mean, nobody in. You know, I think nobody in the Democratic Party, nobody, nobody was like, oh, this is a great idea. Like, it's clearly a shitty compromise. Um, but looking back now, it's it's like even more egregious and crazy. Um, but I think like, you know, Defensive Marriage Act. I mean, Bill Clinton signed that shit, you yes. know, um, and, you know, and then not to mention Monica. Right. So I think we're all looking at that period in our existence and thinking. And look, that was a core moment. Right. I mean. Bill Clinton was the Democrat who helped Democrats get out of their slump. And I think that as we look look ahead to 2020, right, I think I think the history books will not be kind to Bill Clinton, just given everything that we now know and the way that we now think about, you know, believing women. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I think I think we'll look back at his pre- presidency and like be really appalled even more so than, than I think we are now. Um, but that urge is going to be there, right? For somebody who's going to say things like ending welfare as we know it and, you know, a marriage was between a man and a woman, things that maybe he believed, maybe he didn't believe that he did like basically to get power. And I think that's, that's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. At the same time, I mean, look, I was listening to uh, The Daily a couple weeks ago, and they had a – this is the New York Times podcast, their news podcast, and they had a two-part thing on – on Kansas and – no, I'm sorry. It was Missouri, not not Kansas. And it was all about uh, uh, pro-life Democrats in – in Missouri and, like, Missouri's a red state and there are Democrats there who are – Catholic who somehow did not become part of like the Reagan Democrats and like, you know, left and like, what does the party do with them? How, how does it, you know, is there is there a place in the Democratic Party for someone who op- opposes abortion? And like these these are really hard questions. <laughs> I think that the Missouri Democratic Party said no. Um, and as a result, like, you know, it may not hold statewide power there for a really long time. Wow. Um, and that's that's like the the choice, right? I mean, and so, you know, if you look at the Republicans and you're like, you either have like hardcore evangelicals or, you know, super hardcore supply side, you know, plutocrat businessmen, and that's it. I think that the Democratic Party also has to look at itself and say like, you know, w- what actually brings us all together as Democrats and um, how can we accommodate the differences um, among people who share our core values? What are those core values? Um, and and I think that I think that that's a that's a deep conversation that needs to happen over time. But um, but I think that there, there are going to be a lot of questions, particularly if if the Democrats want to overcome what is the structural problem of American 
um, the American Constitution, American governance, right? I mean, by 2040 or 2050, 70 percent of um, senators will come from states that represent 30 percent of the population. That's just how our constitution works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've had, um, you know, we've had now um, a bunch of elections in the last few years where the winner of the election did not win the popular vote. Right. Uh, you know, um, and so so I think that like these kind of core structural questions about our democracy and they're like fantasies about like packing the Supreme Court or, right. you know, like these are these are hard problems. Um, you know, how, you know, if, if the Senate is essentially closed to Democrats because of the demographic changes of the country, um, that, you know, that that's complicated. That's difficult. Um, you know, if the electoral map um, essentially kind of closes off to Democrats because of the way that the Democrats, that, like, how do you solve that problem? And how do you bring people who don't agree with you on a number of issues into a program of, and I think that's why you're seeing economic populism at the heart of the yeah. Democratic message right now and an avoidance of, of I think it's issues. the wrong, yeah, I think it's the wrong, do you want to know what, what me, Cami Esposito would do? Yeah, I do. You want to know what the, yeah. what the answer is? Cami for president. Yeah. I'm going to fix it. It's super, I think it's actually super easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that there has to be a huge and party-wide demographic shift in who we run and who the party reaches out to. Like, and I don't, I don't, when I say we, I mean, it's just because I'm like on yeah. that side of things. Like, yeah, I don't need sure. to be a, like, I, what I need is for the Democratic Party to like realize that they have to, I think, I think that if there was a change in who was running, they would mm automatically and inherently know from a felt sense, from a lived experience sense, what issues can be sidelined and what can't. I mean, I, yep. like I truly think yep. that when you have more women running, you stop talking about abortion so much as if it is an issue that can change. Yeah. Like, I just think you do. And I, yeah. and I think um, when you have, you know, people of color who are and I'm talking about like this is like a this is a massive change. This isn't like the one, but I just mean this isn't like Ben Carson. This is mm. this is like when there is when there are you know t five candidates running, they are all black men. It is very difficult to speak to um, to like flood uh, fear tactics yep. into your you know your debate or whatever, yep. or or to your to the media or the way that the that the other side is. Is coming in and because you can almost do that with like one black person and then the rest it's a white and then other than it's a bunch of white candidates and you're you know like you're using you're picking your word choice or whatever but mm -hmm. if it's like five black people they all have oh my god different life experiences and different yep. stances I think you inherently change the talking points of the other side and I, they have to sure they have to change with that's I, that's I, my this is my thought I this think, is my solution. I, I think patented. That, I think that TM. the patented Cami Esposito solution has some merit to it. Um, I think the the like I think that it doesn't deal with like the basic infrastructure problem, which is that, no, it doesn't. You know, it um, doesn't. And and I also think that um, I mean, look, I would not. You know, we potentially there you we could end up with three African American governors. Um, in um, the United in, in the United States, uh, this cycle, um, Georgia is very very close. Um, who would have thought that Andrew Gillum would be ahead at this point? But he is in Florida. The idea that Florida, which is twice given um, uh, victory to um, 
two presidents uh, who lost the popular vote um, would elect a black, uh, black, black. Look at Florida. Yeah, look at Florida. Wacky place. <laughs> wacky, wacky place. Anyway, look, I, I, I'm I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist, and I'm also I'm also skeptical of realism. So I don't know where that leaves. Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, it has been great talking to you. Um, just you're clearly such a smart person with so many um, with so many lived moments that work into your life. That's exactly what I'm saying. Aww. That's I think you prove my point. You put a different person into the job, and they they know how to, they know how it needs to be approached. And I just think like that's I think that's a a true moment that we're at right now. I'm yeah. really happy that you have the job that you have and that, um, you know, you're a person who is helping to steer the news or to watch over the news. Aww. So thanks for doing that work. I'm sure thank it's exhausting. You. No, well, and thank you, Cammie, for doing what you do. <laughs> oh, look at us. Before um, I send you out into your night, which involves dinner with me. Uh, it does. Look, really looking forward to it. Um, I wanted to ask you if you want to shout out a queero, which is like person, place, or thing that just makes you feel like that's that's some something that helped me be the person I am today. Um, so right now on my bookshelf, um, at, on my bedside table, um, I am reading a collection of essays by Adrian Rich, and mm. I am pulling a lot of sustenance from them in this particular moment. And so I want to shout out Adrian Rich. Thanks. Thanks for being you, boo. You know what? Sometimes a book, sometimes a book is the balm that we need today. It, Just it, pop in it, through it, a book. I think I think less less phone, more book yeah. is like the way forward. That and I recently started baking bread again, and I find that that's been very <laughs> helpful. Bread and books, books and bread. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lydia. It's a pleasure to be here. This week's episode of Query is sponsored by Wild Fang, a feminist fashion brand that's here to take down the patriarchy and is committed to giving back. Wild Fang is founded and run by women. They offer gender-smashing styles that could fit whoever you are. A percentage of every purchase at wildfang.com goes to charity, and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to fight for your rights. Go to wildfang.com, use the code QUERY for 25% off. That's W-I-L-D-F-A-N-G.com, code QUERY. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and he crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.